Welcome back to Let's Scare Matthew Price to Death. Thank you for downloading slash streaming slash listening to us and to me. Uh, I'm your host, Matthew Price. Uh, uh, by weird coincidence, the show is called Let's Scare Matthew Price to Death. So uh, we have a really great guest. Um, our first doctor, I believe. This is our, I believe this is the first person we've had on the show who, ha who has to be called doctor because she has a PhD in, of all things, scary Spanish movies, is I believe the title of her PhD, her dissertation. Uh, so because of that, we're going to talk about Devil's Backbone, the uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, movie, which I am really excited to talk about because, man, what a great, great movie. Uh, and we're going to have all that and we're going to have a brand new sponsor. So come back after the theme. Hey, you, you want to see something really scary? You bet. It's Let's Scare Matthew Price to Death with your host, Matthew Price. So we have an amazing show. I'm very excited to do this with um, somebody who I consider to be not just an eminently qualified guest, but also perhaps a friend. And uh, so that is very exciting for me. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk to her in a minute. But before we get to introducing my guest, uh, we do have a brand new sponsor on the show this week. Uh, this week's sponsor is... Uh, it is a really popular fear for a lot of people. I only know about this fear from hearing other people talk about it, but I know it's a popular one and a big, a big choice, and that is dentists. Uh, so this week's show is sponsored by Dentists and Dentistry. And, uh, and I think there's really two ways to think about the fear of dentists. There's the way in which you think, I'm going to go to the dentist and they're going to poke around on my mouth and it's going to fucking hurt, which is... Legit, that's not a, a, a that's not a, an irrational fear like spiders or something. That's they are gonna hurt your mouth. I feel like that's reasonable. There's the other way, which is the fear that I do have, which is like the fear that they they know that I haven't been flossing. They know they can look in my eyes and they can say, "You you have a la you lack character." You I can see that. So it's the judgment I think is maybe one of the reasons people don't like the dentist. But we're still happy to have them, and and uh, you know. Of all the fears that you can have, it's the one that you're almost guaranteed to have to face up to about three, about two, three times a year because you can't not go to the dentist, kid. That's that's bad. Don't do that. Go to the dentist, no matter how afraid you are. Uh, so welcome to so thanks dentistry, and welcome to our guest uh, Sheila Rowan Leg, Doctor Sheila Rowan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for for coming for coming all the way thousands of miles just to do my show. Exactly. I'm leaving I, later tonight. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, no, you, uh, you, uh, I call you doctor because you have a doctorate in, and what is your, what is your PhD in your, or your dissertation? Um, uh, my PhD, it's, well, it's, you know, doctor of philosophy. Uh, right. I wrote my dissertation on contemporary Spanish fantastic film. So I wrote on films from Spain, uh, from the last 20 years, from the early 1990s, films in the general uh, umbrella of fantastic genres. So horror, science fiction, fantasy, and thriller movies, talking about uh, what is what has been happening in the past 20 years in Spain with these kinds of movies, how they rework uh, genre tropes that we're used to seeing of science fiction and horror and all that, and also how the films either do or do not reflect um, their Spanish roots from their directors and or screenwriters. Okay, so you both had to be steeped in in the filmmaking aspect of it, but then also in Spanish culture, I guess, and yeah. in Spanish history. To, yes. Yeah. To be able to, to give that a, a rounded look. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, which brings me to the movie that you chose, uh, 
which I think is probably, if it's not the best example of what you just talked about, it's certainly a very it's Good one of the example. best and one of the most interesting, yeah. uh, The Devil's Backbone, right. El Espinazo del Diablo, directed by Guillermo del Toro, uh, which was the first of his two films set during the Spanish Civil War. The other one being the one that more people know, of course, which is Pan's Labyrinth. Anytime right. I mention my PhD work to anybody, the first film they mention is Pan's Labyrinth, right? Uh, because that is more well known. Not as many people have seen The Devil's Backbone, although I actually think of the two films, it is the better one. It's the It's the more... Uh, unusually made film, I think, of the two, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. And, it, and what what I think is, uh, um, we're going to talk about sort of. I think there's lots to talk about in that movie, um, in this movie. But the one thing that struck me right away is it's a Spanish movie made with Spanish money in Spain by a Mexican. Yes. So uh, that I think has its own unique. Kind yeah. Of, uh, it's a bit uh, like an American making a, a British film. Sort of. I mean, the script was co-written by Del Toro and two Spaniards, um, right. Antonio Trasoras and David Munoz. Uh, they're two, they brought, and each of them, the two guys and Del Toro, each had their own script, and they melded them together. Okay. Uh, Del Toro had a script that was set during the Mexican Revolution, and... Chasoros uh, and Munoz had a had this story that was set in an orphanage and was sort of a gothic horror, and they and they brought those two scripts together, um, uh, and then they switched it to being from the Mexican Revolution to the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, and which and so was the Spanish script the one that had the ghosts in it, or did they both? They both kind of had ghosts in them. Okay. Um, and because uh, the yeah, I mean, I I've interviewed Antonio Trasoros about it uh, for my PhD because I write about the film in my PhD in my book, and that was sort of he sort of had it as a gothic ghost story. And yeah. Del Toro, of course, works a lot in ghosts and ghost imagery, as we see in a lot of his work. Although he's turned a little bit more to monsters, although I think Crimson Tide, his new film, is a bit more him going back to the gothic yeah. that we see in The Devil's Backbone. Yeah, it feels, and it feels very gothic. He just presented, uh, he presented it at uh, the Lightbox, three gothic romances, Mm -hmm. uh, as a way of sort of grounding people in what he's looking at when he talks about uh, Crimson Peak, and this feels very much of a piece. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is the, what's the story of So The Devil's Backbone, it's set in the sort of last months of the Spanish Civil War. It's in an orphanage in the middle of, um, they never really specify exactly where in Spain it is. Middle of nowhere, Spain, this orphanage that literally is in the middle of the nowhere. It's like a day's walk from the closest village. It's a boy's orphanage and the kids there, the orphans, they're sons of the Republicans who are about to lose the Spanish Civil War. And one boy is brought because his father's at the front and he's sort of left there by friends of his father. And he finds out that there is another boy who mysteriously disappeared. And they say that there's a ghost that's haunting the orphanage. And it turns out there is a ghost. He sees the ghost. Yes. The ghost is there. The ghost is there. And we can talk about that. The presence of the ghost, the, and this ghost is haunting the orphanage. Um, and it's about the boys and how they're dealing with each other and the presence of this ghost and also the grown-ups, the woman, um, Carmen, who runs the orphanage, her her lover who's not, uh, well, the man who loves her, Cesares, who's a doctor from Argentina who yeah. just stays there because he's in love with her. And then Jacinto, who is the villain of the film, um, who is a former, orphan. a former orphan who's stayed behind in a sort of the jack-of-all-trades of the orphanage and also Carmen's lover. On the side, um, even though there's a 30 or 40 year difference in age there. Um, And he's, she's got, Carmen has a stash of gold 
And yes, which into, is also belongs to Republicans, which right? also their, is part of their, their money, fighter money, money right? which isn't going to do them any good, sadly. Right. And, and they, are, they are presented as nominally the good side. Of the they law, are. Right? Well, that's yeah. it. They were the good side. They're what we would consider the good side. Right. Um, the Republicans, they were fighting for a democracy, the democracy right. that was overthrown by the nationalists, by the right. army. And they were, I think, just contextually in the war, there were a lot of Americans and Brits and other people who yeah. came to fight, they fought with them, right? So, yeah. So it was like a cause celeb around the world. Very much. The Spanish, Civil War. the Spanish Civil War is is one of the few civil wars that's known quite well internationally, yeah. like the American Civil War. And it's it suffered from being kind of romanticized because of international involvement. We can really blame Ernest Hemingway a lot for that. Sure. Yeah. And other countries have made films about the Spanish Civil War. There's a couple from America, like for whom the bell tolls. There's Land and Freedom from the UK, Ken Loach's film. There's The War is Over, and Lam Renee's film from France. So that's kind of unusual. And and it's well examined in Spanish cinema too. Extremely well. Um, Um, But all, but very differently. During the fascist years, of course, you couldn't make anything that put the Republicans in a good light. It was always, you know, the nationalists were the good guys and they won the war. It wasn't until... Franco died and after the transition that there was a flood of films about the Civil War and there still are one or two every year but from pro-Republican standpoint I I was going to say the fascists would be watched films now they're generally presented as unambiguously I couldn't when I doing my research I couldn't find anything any film post-transition that was positive towards the nationalists not a single one Hmm. I mean they might be out there and I just haven't found it yet yeah yeah but it's it's pretty hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so it's a war that was really well known that got won by the bad guys. Exactly. Like, uh, it got its own. They got won by right? the nationalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sadly. Yeah. And that's and but because of international involvement, it's it has been romanticized, which is strange because it was a terrible war. Right. And horrible violence on both sides, admittedly, like the Republicans weren't angels in all of this. But the nationalists certainly slaughtered a lot of people. Yeah. And what's interesting about the devil's backbone is that it came at a time right before the enactment of what was called the historical memory law, which was finally talking about the deaths and, and how many people on the Republican side were murdered, innocent civilians were murdered and right. the, the search for an exhumation of mass graves of people. So there killed. was like an enforced silence and pretty an enforced similar, silence for a long time. And then right. a voluntary silence because people just didn't want to deal with it. Right. So actually, in many ways, not that dissimilar to sort of post-World War II Germany. Exactly. Other many, there's lots of examples yeah, of yeah. cultures that just want to distance and don't want to talk about it. Don't want to talk about it because there are still pe- people still alive, yeah. from not only yeah. from the war, but from the fascist years. Yeah. I feel like uh, there's a pretty, uh, I can't even remember who the comedian is, but there's a pretty famous routine about... Uh, having one of those craftmatic adjustable beds, which allows you to put your contort your body in almost any shape mm-hmm. and then breaking down the middle of the night and uh, giving yourself fellatio. And then the next day you're like, I'm sure that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> <Which is kind laughs> of, yeah. I'm assuming this is probably on a much horrible, more larger scale. Same idea. Yeah. Like, oh, we never, bleh, let's just go get some yeah. coffee. We didn't do that. Uh, yeah. And it is interesting that it, that it really was a, probably would take an outsider, a Mexican, to make a film like this about the Spanish Civil War that has the fantastic in it that is a horror film. Yeah. Most uh, other films about the Spanish Civil War, and there's only one or two exceptions, are are pretty straightforward historical dramas. So, um, So I think that does a good job of sort of setting the stage for kind of what the movie is talking about. It has this ghost story at the center of it. It starts with the creation of the ghost. Like, it's not, it's not coy in any way no. it doesn't it doesn't let you discover along with the character you're ahead of everybody you have a sort of god's eye view on what's happening mm-hmm. the movie i think that's yeah right. it's not subjective to any one character yeah and you and 
and it's interesting that you call that you would say that it is categorically a horror film because I think it it, it purposely avoids a lot of what you would call traditional horror movie technique. Yes. Like, uh, it doesn't try to jump scare you. It never, it never presents the main sort of little boy ghost as anything other than sad and in need of help. Yeah. Right. This is, I mean, this is it that then that has to do a lot with presenting the ghost as representative of trauma of yeah. war. Um, this boy is not only a victim of the actual event that killed him, right. um, but as a victim of war. And so, of course, he's sad and he just wants somebody to help him. That's yeah. what all these boys represent, that they are they are the true victims of what happens during wartime. And it's interesting that the that Del Toro's script was originally set during the Mexican Revolution. And what he said in an interview is that he changed it to the Spanish Civil War, partly because that was where they set the film and that's location and money and all that, right. but also because the Spanish Civil War is very clear cut. There was a good side and a bad side. Mexican right, Revolution, right. which I know virtually nothing about, had a lot more factions. And it wasn't, you know, Spanish Civil War, right. good guys, bad guys. And what guys. do you want to make your movie about? Exactly. Do you want to make your movie about these characters or do you want to spend all your time creating this backdrop history yeah. and that deals with the factions? And, yeah. yeah. And, and it's very clear in the film that the ghost exists. Right. There is no doubt that it exists. It's not just in this kid's imagination. There are shots that are from the point of view of the ghost. Yeah. We know yeah. that it's real and we know right near the beginning that it's real. Yeah, and it's it's a very um, lovely. I would almost call it um, uh, uh, what is it like magical realism kind mm -hmm. of approach. That's exactly what right? it is. To go, it is it's magical just like, realism. These things are ha they're they're happening. Yeah, and right? it's it's the use of magical realism to fill in the gaps of history. Yeah, which I mean, and magic realism is much more common in Latin and South America. I was going to say, like, yeah. it, so in in a way, it sort of calls to mind something like Hundred Years of Solitude, yes. right? Where yeah. where you're dealing with horrific historical events but mm -hmm. you're dealing with them in a way that has whimsy and and lightness to kind of get at the stuff right? exactly and that yeah. and that using the ghost trope is a way to examine these these things that haven't been examined in yeah. that way before especially at that time when the film was made which is well, it was released in 2001 when people were starting to say okay we need to dig up the ghosts we need right. to look at this and that's what this this film was sort of also preempting so was there, do you, do you get a sense from your research that this represented, um, is there any amount of, of genuine progress or catharsis that, that was enabled by this movie in Spain? Like, was this an important movie in that sense of like allowing people the freedom to? I think it was part of a general movement. Yeah. Yes. Although, I mean, the, and the, the, the exhumation of graves and the identifying of remains of people went on for about a decade. It got stopped, sadly. The government no longer... There are private, private charities that still do it, but the yeah. government stopped their initiation and their funding, the, more, well, the recent Spanish government. To be fair, they're having trouble just keeping the lights on. That's true. Here, that's so, yeah. true. I mean, I live there, so I know. Um, but but, that, but that's also, but that is not, actually, it's not, a, it's not a financial, yeah. that's not a financial question, that okay. it is a question of who's in power. Just and priorities. Priority, yeah. Well, and people, the people in power now being right wing. Yeah. That's, that's a whole other story for another show. Sure. Not this show, another <laughs> podcast about current Spanish politics. But, um, yeah. But I do think, like, uh, you know, unlike, I feel like if you had made a, a movie this fantastic in, and I use that term in the literal sense of it being about fantasy, um, in, in North America, 
you wouldn't be have any reasonable expectation that it could in any way reflect the culture, move the needle, do anything in the real world. But there seems to be a lot more acceptance of that genre in Spanish culture or that idea in Spanish culture. Um, not in Spanish culture, no, in Mexican culture. Oh, yes, that right? that's the interesting thing huh. is that's what Del Toro brings into it in Spain. Um, and this is something that I talk about is that with a few exceptions, Spanish art literature um tends to be more based in realism or if there's anything fantastical it's all based in catholicism okay so this kind of film was unusual the movement that i write about in in my book is is as an anomaly in spanish art yeah. and literature to use the fantastic to tell stories hmm. of spanish life and culture is is something that is still quite new it's not i mean there are exceptions as said like the artistic works of goya Right. Or Velázquez or Don Quixote as a novel. I mean, those are the exceptions rather than the rule in Spanish culture. Because that's how I think, as an outsider, I perceive Yeah, and it's interesting that that's what we perceive, but that's not the norm. So that's what's interesting about Del Toro telling this story, because he's Mexican, and he sees the characters as Mexican, not as Spanish. So it's it's this it's a, it's an outsider's an view, mix. even though yeah. the script is partly is partly written by two Spaniards. It's an outsider's take, yeah. outsider looking at the story, a story set during the Spanish Civil War. So, do you have a sense of what you know? What is the what is the essential divider between uh, Mexican Spanish culture and Spain Spanish culture in terms of like like. Do you feel like when when he views them as essentially Mexican, what does that mean to you? Well, that really comes down to the magic realism. Okay. That idea of of the fantastic being a part of everyday life that does not exist in Spanish culture. So that that whole the stuff around like the uh, the Day of the Dead and all of that that's uniquely that's uniquely Mexican. Okay. Yeah, that does not exist in Spain. Hmm. The only that as I said, the only fantastic thing you can have in Spain is is to do around Catholicism. So maybe that has as much to do with the mix into Aboriginal cultures in Mexico. uh, Yeah. And and sort of that like animism and that other stuff. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of research in that area, but I mean. But there's no tradition but of that kind of stuff in there's Europe. There's not, not at all. all those, not, it's certainly not, like, not in Spain. It's like there's lots of Celts running around. No. <laughs> well, in, yeah. in the northwest of Spain, in Galicia, perhaps, but I yeah. haven't researched that enough. But no, that, that does not exist in Spain, which is another reason why this film is, I think, so unique in its telling. Although one of my arguments is that the Spanish Civil War setting is somewhat incidental. There's a lot of different traumatic warlike situations yeah. you could set the same story in and it wouldn't necessarily be that much different yeah it's it's more about what effect does war have on children well the war is very distant in the movie right yes. like like it, in, in and in contrast to pan's labyrinth where i feel like it could only be i would agree the Spanish pan's war, the, right? because of it no i mean in devil's backbone the war is only mentioned in two scenes right the, an early exposition scene so that gives us the setting right this and, is the, the and it's also the reason why the main character gets yeah left exactly so we kind of yeah. have to know that yeah. Yeah. so we're given the idea of the time period and carmen saying you know how can i take another child i've got no money i can barely feed the ones who are here right. and he's like look the war you know we're probably not going to win this war you know she's like just take this money buy some guns yeah we're all screwed anyways and then one scene when uh the doctor cesaris goes into town to get some supplies and he sees um some of the republicans and it's already the nationalists are already there and there there's a firing squad and and they make a point of pointing out there's people from other countries in this there's a canadian and there's a chinese person in that lineup waiting to be killed so that's those are the only two times the war is referenced it's it's funny like that i i definitely see 
it, you know, I can equally see the argument for this being a horror film as I can for what I think it, it mixes in, which I think is so great, is it works very well as a kind of boy's own adventure mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. ghosts. Very right? much. Like, because the ghosts are very fully understandable right from the beginning. Like, one of the things that makes ghosts or apparitions frightening is the complete lack of understanding of what they want, mm -hmm. right? But you never have that in this. Both the ghosts in this are very able to communicate. Yeah. And it's, they don't have to... You know. Well, it's interesting because I think at first the ghost of Santi, who is the ghost we, we know immediately as yeah. a ghost, yeah. you don't necessarily know exactly what he wants at the beginning. You, yeah. you know that he's there yeah. and that he's try he seems to be trying to communicate with right. these boys, with Carlos, our main character, Jaime, the one that we think has killed him, but it turns out is not. Right. That was a trickery in the beginning of the film. Um and but you, it takes a while to figure out, okay, what exactly is it that he wants? Then, okay, he wants revenge for his murder yeah. by Jacinto. Of course, we don't know that Cesaris, the narrator, is, is a ghost. Also a ghost. Is also a ghost because he yeah. doesn't die until the end right. of the film. And it's only when the voiceover comes, oh, the voiceover from the, the beginning. The voiceover is, is, him is him in the, you know, re reminiscing on yeah. the story as so, opposed to, yeah. But it's true that, and once you realize that, it's, it's, it's a film that immediately says, okay, you have to go back and watch this again. Yeah. Because you have to understand you are actually, if there's any perspective you're watching this film through, it is through the perspective of the ghost. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. quite unusual in a film. I mean, funny enough, the one that pops into my mind is also a Spanish film, The Others. Yeah. Whereas yeah. we realize at the end that yeah. we're seeing it through the perspective of ghost. Yeah. It also has the, um, and I, which I quite like, uh, the, the only other time that I'm aware of this being the case is American Werewolf in London, mm -hmm. where the ghost looks just like its corresponding decomposing body. Exactly. For the entire... So as the body decomposes, mm -hmm. the ghost decomposes, yeah. which is great. Because mm -hmm. uh, um, it really points up how at some point they would just be invisible. Yeah. Right. And and Santi, you do see him and more clearly each time he is shown. Although it is... I mean, it's it's computer graphic effects, but I think done very well. And I love that... The stuff with the blood in the, the air blood and the in the air, in the because air. of so course he was drowned. Even for 15 years ago, it's just... Like, it's it so good yeah, because yeah. that's it. He was, he was, you know, hit on the well, head. He's not just drowned, but he's in the water right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so of course, and, yeah. and that sort of, you know, when I love the opening credits, because of course you have the body plunging into the water and then it switches to the opening credits and it's water. And then it becomes this fluid and we see these deformed fetuses right. that of course we'll see later in Cesaris's laboratory. Right. Which gives the movie its name. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, what do you take from the title? Because obviously there's the, the literal thing of you see a baby with a devil's backbone mm -hmm. preserved in the... Uh, Whatever the fluid is. Let's say it's rum, even though we know it's not. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever he told... It might be rum, you maybe, never know. Maybe. Um, but, but there's obviously, like, I think you know, a larger kind of allegorical meaning to that. So, well, I think also the superstition, like Cesaris talks about the superstition. People think this rum in which a fetus has been fermenting is yeah. going to cure them of various ailments when it's right. not like we all, you know, the idea that there's some magic thing that's going to help win this war. It doesn't exist. The okay. war is lost. I think yeah. that's part of it. The devil's backbone. I also think maybe refers to Jacinto as as who he's a villain, but he's the jack of all trades. He sort of takes care of the repairs of the orphanage. He kind of yeah. holds it together, but he's the devil. Yeah. He's okay. the enemy in their midst. Yeah. So there's a few different meanings you can take there. Yeah. There's, there's a, a nice sort of that whole relationship that he has with, um, with the woman that runs the orphanage Carmen. with Carmen and the, and the sort of strong implication that that's been going on from well before it was appropriate. 
Probably. Uh, he right? was probably underage, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> and that kind of so that even though she's presented as kind of a good person, it's it's a bit of chickens coming home to roost, so the movie yeah. can get away with doing some pretty devastating stuff yeah. to some of its main characters. There's a really great explosion in this movie that just pretty much wipes everybody out. Yeah. Um and and uh and it's you know, and I think in in, in because the relationship is so twisty and convoluted, mm -hmm. it's sort of like you go, Yeah, that's okay. But yeah. you know. Um Well, all the adults really are kind of flawed. I mean, the main adults, obviously Asinto is the as the villain. Carmen, yes, she she runs the orphanage. She's taking care of yeah. these boys, but she's also corrupted Yacinto by taking him yeah. as her lover, probably since he was a teenager. There's the Doctor Cesaris, who is in love with Carmen, but he's he sort of it's sort of implied that he's impotent. Yeah, I was going to say there's everyone has a kind of physical physicality to their character deformation. Mm -hmm. She has the missing leg. Mm -hmm. He he is clearly is not working as well as he would like. Yeah, um, and and Yacinto for his all of his sort of like physical prowess seems entirely broken in some psychological ways yeah. that yeah that uh that are you know yeah. nicely reflective of what the war itself is doing to the country how right? it corrupts people yeah. how it's corrupted so many people and 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 beaten so many people down especially because i mean they never give an exact time but it's it's sort of yeah. suggested that it's it's about to end that yeah. that it and in not in the people there's favor and, the, and that these boys are in danger they are, they are being the sons of Republicans. It's you know it is suggested that if the Nationalists found them, they would be killed, even right, though they're right. even though they're children. It because doesn't matter because they are they are the Reds. Uh, they, they are, are the on enemy. The wrong side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they would they would be killed if they were found. Yeah. So and really, if for no other reason than we've all seen movies, and if we don't kill them, they will come back to eventually. Exactly. So we really have to. Yeah, and it's and so it's. Again, that trauma of war and who it affects the most, which is the innocent and the vulnerable children. Although they do fight, the children are these boys. They say it's a boys' own adventure in its way because they do fight back. They're locked away after the explosion while Yacinto and his gang try to find the gold. But they're like, okay, no, we've it's got also, to do something. Because of that, because it's got treasure in it, because mm -hmm. it's got mystery, yeah. because they are exploring to get the answers. It's not just. You know the, the 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 sort of the essentially great thing about boys on adventure movies, and there's another one I was going to mention to you, which is also set during the Spanish Civil War, and it, I saw it a couple of years ago at TIFF. It's a film for children. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Zip and Zap and the Marble Gang. Yeah, yeah. And it's another one that I think has you know really beautifully uses this as a backdrop yes. to create what I think is a sort of brilliant uh, boys on adventure, where but like this film where you know it's about not solving a mystery through action yeah not just through discovery of information right and you know doing things that are the right thing in the moment mm -hmm. will will allow you to overcome right it's very interesting i just thought of this when you said that that so you have yeah, yeah. that that which is a great film and this which is boys together fighting whereas sort of two main films that feature female children right. pan's labyrinth and spirit of the beehive which yeah. is i don't know if you've seen that one i haven't seen it yet but very I famous want to, very, yeah, uh, wonderful know. film it's yeah. girls victor Eris. Victor Eris, yeah. Eris, uh it's girls alone I don't know if there's a okay. significance in that, but I'm going to have to investigate. Um, yeah. Yeah, the boys together, but if a woman is on her own. Huh. Uh, spirit. Well, the Spirit of the Beef Hive features two sisters, but there's one girl who's basically kind of on her own. And well, it's I, related to Frankenstein. There's sort of a Frankenstein connection okay. in that film as well. So again, yeah. the I fantastic. I know that in the case of Pan's Labyrinth, that Del Toro describes this as his boys' movie and that as his girls' movie, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. sure. But it's interesting that you point out that, that a boys' movie is about companionship and camaraderie. 
and a girls movie is about independence yeah I mean, in breaking uh, away, having the freedom, the confidence to break away from yeah. the, your supports, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Carmen is in charge of the orphanage, and she's got Cesaro's there, but she's kind of on her own, and she's physically disabled. Yeah. Um, and then you have, I can't remember the character's name, Yacinto's girlfriend or fiance. Um, right, the maid or The maid, or she she's sort of like, the, you know, the cook. Yeah. And she tries to save everybody after the explosion, even though she's injured, and she goes off on her own, and then she's killed. Right. So she, she again, although she's also she's sort of the last adult left besides yeah. Cesaro, so that he's going to stay behind with the gun and she's going to go off yeah. on her own there's a lot of um sort of filmmaking in this movie as well mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh this time especially i noticed a lot of visuals from uh that that are very clearly um crib from westerns mm-hmm um, well, which, the setting you know, alone. The setting, the landscape obviously mm-hmm. helps, but like, there's a lot of shots through the doorway to the orphanage that really look like mm-hmm. that shot in the searchers. Like, they're, oh, they're yeah. really, he he's really going as hard as he can for the sort of John Ford thing as well, which mixed with sort of the gothic aspects of it, I think is really interesting. You don't see a lot of. I don't think of Ford as gothic. No, right? no, not at, at all. all. He's the opposite of gothic. Mm-hmm. It's all very bare bones, quiet. You know, like not. I think of gothic as being like lots of curly cues in the sense yeah. of the filmmaking, right? Um, but it's a nice mix. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's got that Western feel, I guess, a bit of spaghetti Western, of course, because yeah. it's not an American yeah. film. Yeah, the isolation on this plane of this huge building. I did look up once where it was. I can't remember now where they filmed it. Is this, uh, it's a physical building that they built yeah. or it's an existing? I believe it's an existing building. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know exactly where. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a place that uh, many people, I think it's difficult to get to. Okay. I mean, not only in the, you know, in the setting of the film in which was the late 1930s, but just right. now. But anytime. Yeah. Anytime. It's Boy, I imagine when they, when whatever location manager brought him that location, he must have been, <laughs> Ecstatic. Frothing like, at the mouth. Look what that. I found for you. Oh yeah. my god, this is gonna be great. And it might have been. It might have been. I mean, there were places like this. There were yeah. orphanages during yeah. the Civil War. Um, was there? But they weren't like the residential schools or that. That. No, thing, right? no, it they was were like refuges. Yeah, for, refuges yeah. for yeah. for these kids. Okay. Because so many were were or, were orphaned because yeah. their parents were killed, mothers and fathers, because both everybody fought during the war on the side of the Republicans, men and women together. Yeah. Uh, which is a little unusual, but it did happen. So yeah, there were there were places. I mean, this is not a specific story of a specific orphanage, but that kind of thing did take that. There yeah. were places like that. They weren't forced there. No, they weren't forced right. there. They were hiding out. The other thing that stood out for me watching this this time was the score, which I think is oh, it's just like, beautiful. It's really gorgeous, mm-hmm. and it's really even for him. He always gets good scores, but this was like exceptionally good. Yeah, like, I love it when when Carlos is running back after trying to get the water, and he's scared by the ghost. Yeah, and that run across and the bomb that the unexploded bomb sitting in the middle of the courtyard. One of the great images of the film. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I we like the elephant in the room. We have somehow managed not to discuss the bomb in the middle of the courtyard. <laughs> Even once in this entire conversation. So one of the major features of this orphanage is that a bomb has dropped on it. It is, to all intents and purposes, should already be gone, right? The idea is that it has somehow escaped through time Mm -hmm. and avoided its clearly predetermined fate. Yes. Uh, So this bomb is... So um, how... Can you have you thought much about how that relates to the larger themes of the movie around war and and 
Spain and... Oh, like, yeah. I mean, I mean, you have the opening shot of the film, which is the bomb being dropped. Right. And it's sort of, it's indicated this is the nationalists, it's their, their air force dropping the bomb, and it sits and it lands in the courtyard, but it does not explode. And they don't even know if it's still working. Like, they, the woman says at the beginning, you know, they, they've... They've decided the bomb squad came, apparently. Yeah. Which I don't believe for a second no, that anyone not. came. And they have declared that it's safe, everybody. Yeah. Even though it's sitting in the middle of an orphanage with lots of little boys right. running around. And even though there's no way in hell we're moving it. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Right? Well, I think it's the, the ticking time bomb of the end of the war, of, yeah. of, the, of the eventual death of everybody in this area, the, the death of the Republican cause, right. the death of these children and their innocence, both literal and metaphorical. Like when the kids are leaving the orphanage and the bomb still hasn't exploded, it's still sitting there. Yeah. Even, even though, though the orphanage has exploded. Yes. Yeah. Even though there was another explosion that it's not the bomb. Right. <laughs> it's not this big bomb. It's another explosion. Um, and the children are leaving. It's like they're, they're, they're not going to their literal deaths, but they're going, they're about to enter a Spain that is fascist. That is, a yeah. that will be a dictatorship for half their lives. I also think that there's maybe something to the idea of the bomb, the the unexploded bomb being standing in for the fact that the there's a horrible secret. Yes. Uh, that that needs to be exploded and discovered. Like mm-hmm. like the bomb is in the courtyard, indicating to the character something here something, has not gone off yet. Yes. And is is going. And to what go is off, the right? secret? Is yeah. it is it? I mean. I mean, the most obvious one is is the murder of Santi. Everybody says he just disappeared. Nobody nobody knows what happened right. to him. Even even Jaime is probably well. Jaime is the only one because he, he saw suspects him. he suspects, yeah. but he hid. And whether he knows about Santi being in the cistern is is a little unclear. Right. He knows that he got hit on the head by Yacinto. Right. But he doesn't know what happened after that. Um. Yeah, and it, yeah, he's he's presented as I mean, certainly he's a kid that has a lot of problems. Oh he's yeah, he's very angry. That kid. Well, they all have a reason to be angry, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also like the fact that I mean, the, so maybe you could look at it as in the sense that um, uh, the the ghost is learning. So he starts off by whispering and breathing, but because he, he can't, and yeah. then he sort of moves things. And eventually, he becomes explicit in in communicating with them. Mm-hmm. But like at one point, uh, the the main character runs and hides in a closet. Yeah. And then just falls asleep in there. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, like, that whole thing of, like, the woman coming to clean and she just finds him in the closet and he just runs out. And her whole attitude is just like, ah, what am I going to do? Yeah. There's nothing to do now. Yeah. He's already out of the closet. I can't even yell at him anymore. Like, yeah. like it's it's a very beautiful kind of realistic portrayal of what it's like when you just have a whole bunch of boys. <laughs> yeah. You know, they can't be controlled. Like, well, they can't be controlled and why bother? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the end is nigh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She, I mean, that woman who would eventually be killed in the explosion, of course, we, she didn't know how close how the end was, but it's more just in general. They're, they know that this yeah. orphanage, the sanctuary is, is not going to last much longer. Yeah. I think people would think of Pan's Labyrinth as being the more overtly poetic film, but this feels like he really, he really hit on kind of the sweet spot of sort of visual poetry. I think so. I mean, it was only his third film. This is bef- this is pre-Hellboy, pre-Blade, right. pre-all this stuff. Is this pre-Blade 2? Yes. So he had done Kronos? He had done else? Kronos and Mimic. Okay. Yeah. So he, I, I mean, Kronos is an like amazing Mimic. film. I love Kronos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite vampire movies. Mimic I also quite like. I yeah. only saw it a couple of years ago. 
Well, it's it's funny. Like even though this is the one that you would think would have it, 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 it this is the movie that dials back from some of the heavily Christian imagery of those two other films. Yeah, heavily Catholic mm-hmm. uh, imagery of Kronos and Mimic. Yeah, that like which I feel like are they're almost hilarious to me because they're so out like yeah you know this this movie doesn't have it feels not really very Catholic it, it doesn't all. and certainly talking to Antonio one of the screenwriters I mean he's I asked him a little bit about that and for him there was really nothing particularly it's not a religious story, I mean the right? gothic certainly has Catholic stuff you can't get away from the Catholic, from Catholicism in the gothic yeah. but it's not overt in the devil's bag which may be another reason why I quite like it yeah um and certainly the Catholic Church it, it dominated. It as a purely atheistic yeah. story. But, I mean, not purely atheistic because it has an afterlife in it. But mm-hmm. it has a completely non-denominational No, afterlife. there's nothing. And, and these ghosts are not religious in any way. They're not there for religious reasons. They're not there. I mean, Cesaris ghosts allegedly... And we could probably say he does. The ghost helps the boys. He li- lets he totally them out does. of the locked room. Yes, he lets them out of the locked room and he is benevolent to them because he appreciates their help. Yes, yeah. and because he is their, their guardian. Yeah. And yeah. up and after, even after death, he's yeah. looking... Because he, that's what he's been charged with. He is protecting these boys yeah. as much as he can. But yeah. no, it's not very... Religion doesn't really come up much. I mean, in fact, Cesaris, when he is alive and he's talking to Carlos, talks about it as another superstition. These right. are just people's silly superstitions that, in the end, do nothing to help or even necessarily hinder yeah. the cause of war. You know these these fetuses in the in the the rum. It's all just yeah, it's all a, superstition. And there's a bit of like real life is scary enough. We yes, don't need, we don't need this. We to don't help need this. Us be moral. Yeah. We can, Whereas yeah. in Pan's Labyrinth, it overrides, but also because I mean that has to do with Pan's Labyrinth being set in the early years of fascism and the and the fascist government giving a lot of control to social and cultural life to the Catholic church. Yeah. So that has to be a part of it much more than the devil's backbone. Whereas Republican Spain um, was not un-Catholic, but moving much towards more towards a secular culture. Well, I was going to say, you know, back to that idea of men and women fighting side by side, there was a sense of like when, you know, land and freedom is really all about the idealism of, that you yeah. know like let's build a true egalitarian free society mm-hmm. um here's our one shot at it yes yes <laughs> you know? uh so yeah i mean that's it's it's appealing mm-hmm. to think that that was why people went yeah and it's interesting know? i mean i mean we call i mean i i do call it a horror film because i suppose because of the ghosts and it is to me genuinely scary a lot of points but it does have this wonderful mix as you say the boys adventure the western the goth well the gothic is also horror but yeah. it's and ghosts are something of the gothic as well but the fact that it that it's set during wartime and it takes away the religion yeah which we normally see in the gothic yeah uh is is very interesting and i think it's because you you're mixing these two guys these two spanish guys in their screenplay which they wanted a gothic horror with del toro's ideas of the effect that war has on children and the trauma that it creates. It, it's its odd because usually you can't often make films of the fantastic that are set in historical events. People don't like that. They don't... They Because they, those events already happen, they feel like there should be an official story yeah, that, and that, it, we, but that we follow. There's right? not... Yeah, I mean, the the... the the film you mentioned, the title that's slipping my mind at the moment, the kids' film. Oh, uh, Zip and Zap and the Marble Game. Yeah, I mean, which that, has, it's a funny title, but boy, that's a good movie. It's Guys, a great, find that movie. It's, it's really so good. much fun, <laughs> and that's unusual. And yeah. you do have some, fan, I mean, but fantastic historical films 
are rare. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've got... The Although, per- who who would not... I Honestly, who would not want to see a movie where Richard Nixon is haunted by ghosts, right? <laughs> I, I am down. Well, if you think about The Dead Zone. Yeah, that's one that, like, overlays it onto American politics pretty Yeah, easily. very much. Yeah, or yeah. The Purple Rose of Cairo. Sure. Which is very, you know, you can't take it away from its setting of the Depression. No, and in fact, that's the key to the whole yeah. movie is the key to, to The Purple Rose of Cairo is that Danny Aiello beats his wife. Yeah. That's what the movie is about. Yeah. The rest of it is just ways of amplifying how horrible that is. Yeah. In, without saying but it's using horrible. the fa- yeah, yeah, and using yeah, that yeah. era of the Depression yeah. and all that. You, But it, it is unusual to, to have it in wartime. You know, people would see this as being a sacrilege. You can't because right. war is so serious, of right. co- which of course it is. I don't want to suggest that war isn't, yeah. but it would take an outsider such as Del Toro to come in. And talk about yeah, exactly. This in terms I mean, you of... could not at this point, even when we're almost we're fifteen years plus past it, but you could not make a movie where simultaneously with nine eleven there were demons in one of the buildings. No, you could not make a movie where that in Definitely any way not. compromised the yeah. the seriousness of you know maybe you know, a few decades down. the road. Yeah, I was going to say you, you might be able to take a whack at Titanic at this point. <laughs> you know, you, you could can, in fact you could take do a, whack a supernatural at Titanic. Titanic story, but, but no. you can't do. This or the Holocaust. No, you have or, to yeah. give it time. But actually, what's interesting is in some of my research, I use the um, the theory of post-memory, uh, which is post-memory being a term coined by Marianne Hirsch, who is an academic who writes a lot on Holocaust trauma, mm-hmm. uh, but especially second and third generation after the Holocaust, um, about how how the memory of the Holocaust affects those who were not there. Yeah. We're talking about the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of victims or survivors. And so she uses the term post-memory. How do you deal with memories that are not your own of trauma? Right. But and, that you've been told. But about that you've been told about. Right. Okay. And, I, I, and I think this Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are very much about that post-memory. About yeah. the children and yeah. grandchildren. Well, how are I mean, they processing this? There would this? be power and reasonable catharsis that could be achieved by adding these these elements yeah. to things mm-hmm. because they are ways of looking at things figuratively. Yeah. Right. But that, I don't think that it, people are, they're going to be very resistant. They don't think it's scary yeah. to, to recontextualize stuff like that in the era, in the area of fantasy. Right. Yeah. So, so that, which is why you need the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the fact that there already were dozens and dozens of films made about the Spanish civil war. Yeah. So he wasn't, it wasn't like this was the first movie. Right. Like I know when, when Adam Agoyan's film Ararat came out, this was the first movie that really talked about the Armenian genocide. And I've, I've never seen it, but my understanding is it's a film within a film. Yeah. And a lot of right. people criticize that saying, but that, that should be something that should be made much later. Why can't we just have a film about the genocide first? Right. right. That just tells the story. Yeah. Straightforward and there, but yeah. there being so many films set during the Spanish civil war already, it was okay right, for an outsider yeah. to come in and yeah. being an outsider. And also, I mean, Mex- a lot of people who fled the Civil War went to Mexico. Right. So, so he would he, have heard stories. He knew this. He had a connection and, yeah. to that. Yeah. And also being somebody who, I mean, he lives in exile from Mexico yeah. um, because of political reasons. My under- I don't know too much about that. Who does? Del Toro. Really? I did not know yeah, that. Yeah. He, okay. he, my understanding is for political reasons, he, he's not going to be getting back to Mexico anytime soon. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's disturbing. That's yeah. So sad to hear. Yeah, it is very sad because he only ever made Kronos in Mexico and it's such an awesome film. Yeah. But he brings, I think he brings his own flair to it, to his movies. Yeah. You, you can't yeah. get the Mexican out of him with his films as, as we see in the devil's backbone very much. Yeah. It yeah. is, it is as much a Mexican film as it is a Spanish film. 
Yeah. And that's one of the great things about it, and why I think in a lot of ways it is superior to Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth might be a little bit too saccharine for my taste. The Devil's Backbone is a bit darker and dirtier. And and I wouldn't say that Pan's Labyrinth doesn't go for the horror, but it doesn't go for it as strongly, I think. Well, it goes more for the sense of design and there's a there's a sense of of how much in love the movie is with its own visuals yeah which i'm not saying the is, devil's backbone not, has a strong it's not, story it's not indulgent but no. it's but it's different from devil's backbone in that way the devil's backbone has a stronger story i yeah, think and that's probably yeah. a credit to the other two screenwriters that has a really strong story that's yeah. interesting to follow and the way it uses the trope of the ghost is quite unique in cinema not yeah. only by the fact that the ghost is 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 evidently real, yeah. Although that does happen in other films, we know. Right. But also, the ghost is not just a ghost. I mean, that happens right at the beginning of the film with the first speech by Cesaris. What is a ghost? Right. We're asked to think: Is a ghost just this physical manifestation of a dead right. person, or is it? Yeah. Or an is it a story? Or is it? Is yeah. it a story? An insect trapped in amber? What are all these things? And 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 so the ghost just Santi isn't just himself. Cesaris isn't just himself. They are the victims of war. They are the memories that are left behind. Yeah. That are waiting to be discovered again. Yeah. They are of, the unexploded bomb. Yeah. And and I you know sadly I think for most North Americans we haven't seen enough um, uh, Federico Lupi performances because he's, oh, he's, he's so wonderful brilliant. He, and he's and, in so many of yeah. he's in so chronos he, he plays cesaris and, and he's in chronos and, yeah and, uh, and he's in pan's labyrinth right and and um the uh, john sales movie men with guns and mm-hmm. various, various things so he did get a little sort of late career resurgence into more international filmmaking but yeah i know that he worked his entire life in mexico i imagine there he's were, argentinian oh, Argen- oh argentinian yeah. i'm sorry there and there's a strong um, connection between spain and argentina in terms okay. of actors going back and forth okay. Um, and it's and it's a shame because I imagine there's a whole body of work there. You don't step into a role like that, do it that well. Yeah. I mean, he he presents as like a sort of like a De Niro figure, like yeah. he's just like clearly well in his. Oh, yeah, he's amazing, you know? and he's and he has been around for years, but not really known to North American yeah. audiences until Kronos. Yeah, and 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 he appears in a lot of other films, a lot of fantastic and horror films. Yeah, he he reminds me of there's a Dutch actor, older actor who was in the Alzheimer case, and he was in uh, character, and he's like been working in the Netherlands for his entire life, mm-hmm. and I can't remember his name, of course, but mm-hmm. but you know you see him in just like two or three roles where the movies got out of their home country, yeah, and you're like, oh, I missed an entire lifetime, yeah. of this guy doing incredible work. Well, even I mean Marissa Paredes who plays Carmen, I right. mean she is a a cornerstone of Spanish. I was going to say she's an Almodovar person. She's right? an yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah. she's in a lot of yeah. his films, and he is the producer, right? Yeah. So um, uh, Del Toro mentioned specifically that I think recently that he has a lot of respect for Almodovar, even though they're very different. They're filmmakers. very different filmmakers. Absolutely. Um, they I make... wonder, I wonder beyond just giving his name and maybe money to it, what, what you think well, is there an influence there? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Almodovar comes, comes out of a certain generation of filmmaker in Spain. When he started making films in the early night, sorry, early 1980s, um, he was making the kind of like, okay, so brief history here. Um, yeah. After Franco died in 75, there was a transition. And obviously there was censorship under Franco and fascism. You couldn't right. make a lot of kinds of films. And then, right. and then what happened in the 80s is they changed um, funding for movies. And, but it, there was sort of a de facto censorship. So there was this law that said you could get money for your production, but your script had to pass a sort of test. Is this the view of Spain that we want to show the world through cinema? Okay. 
And Almodovar's films were not those kinds of films because his films were about homosexual community, right, I was drug say, they're, addicts, they're much more sex, drug, and to, rock and rolls. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah. I put him in with like sort of early Jonathan Demme yeah. and, and maybe like even John Waters. The funny thing of, is, of course, yeah. he is now, he is still the face of Spanish cinema to the world, but his film, his early stuff was completely rejected right. by the film academia higher-ups. He It took him a long time. It wasn't until Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and that breakthrough, it wasn't until he was recognized internationally that Spain began to recognize him. So his production company is always like El Deseo has always pushed for the underdog. Okay. And Del Toro's stuff, that was sort of kind of an underdog film. Okay. And that's where he, and he was also the, the guy behind Alex de la Iglesia's first movie. Yeah. Also okay. very different kind of filmmaker. Right, but I think right. uh, El Deseo definitely, I mean, I can talk about Almodovar now and how he's not the same as he was. But in those years, he really helped to fund movies that were different. That didn't necessarily have to align with his sensibility, but just that he could see that someone has somebody was trying to do something different. He's like I can lend my name to this. Exactly. Case. Yeah. yeah, he's always supported the underdog, yeah. the people not in line with. Well, thank goodness because we got so many great uh, exactly films. We got we got this great films. So, yeah, 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 very lucky. Yeah. And and I Del Toro's always talked about doing another Spanish Civil War film. I don't know if he will. I hope so. Well, I, the the you know the te- the the temptation to make everything into a trilogy is almost overwhelming. I think. <laughs> yeah. Filmmakers. So now that he's done two, you know. he might have to do a third one. Uh, probably again based around children. He hasn't done one for a while. Yeah, not since Pan's Labyrinth. Well, he's so, only done Pacific Rim. So he's done. So. He's done the boy film and the girl film, film. Spanish Civil War. So obviously, it will have to be about a hermaphrodite, something or a dog, way. or a dog. Sure, a young dog. But uh, yeah, I mean, I as I said, I really think Devil's Backbone is the superior of the two in terms of being scary. Yeah. There are some genuinely yeah. scary well, moments sure. in that. I mean, they both have... Well, there's terrifying moments in Pan's Labyrinth because some of the creatures, like the, the eyeballs for hands, yeah. dude, is... Yeah, that's pretty scary. It's scary. Mm-hmm. But but uh, th- this feels more like mature, stay-with-you kind of scares. Like, it's interesting that he started off more mature and then yeah. becomes... He becomes less mature, and I, yeah. I find that weird. Even though it, it is a, a film where the main characters are children, it's yeah. a very mature film, and it does not shy away from anything it's putting these kids in the middle of the most horrific yeah, situation yeah. which is the point of the film yeah. like this is it's trying to say this is they are the victims of war look what we have to put them through right like another theory of the unexploded well, i guess the difference is that it's although this is gothic it's not romantic mm. and not at Pan's all. labyrinth is very romantic yeah right and i think that's capital maybe, R romantic and yeah. yeah oh no and devil's backbone is not at all this yeah. is this is the real horror of war and yeah. what effect does it have on these kids and 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 in another way it's not romantic in the sense that these kids the characters of the kids they feel much more like almost like mark twain characters they're yeah. they're very much like yeah let's go fishing you know like they're really like boy boys yeah. they're not and they're not interested in like any kind of even the sort of the, the main character who is sort of presented as sensitive because he reads comic books. Um, he's not really... I mean, they're pretty rough and tumble, these guys, yeah. right? So. But then at the end, what do they do? They they make sure that Jacinto dies. They make spears and they kill him. And, yeah. and it, it's their rite of passage into manhood yeah. that they yeah. have to take. And it's not like they don't take the... It's not that they don't realize the seriousness of what they have to do. They're like, this is the world we live in. We have to right. get this guy back in order to release our friend... In right. order to and get to our move friend's on revenge. And move on past this war and like end yeah. this thing properly. Well, and it's yeah. so fascinating. I, I, I have this debate with people about whether Yusinto dies because he can't get the gold off of his 
trousers that he's tied yeah. the gold and is the gold which is quite heavy dragging him right. down or is the ghost of santi who puts his arms around him and drags him right. down saying yeah or is the ghost really there in the water yeah. or not yeah mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean i think it's an easy read both ways yeah. I, you know there is a bit of uh treasure of sierra madre in that he yeah. dies because of the his greed yes right? and and uh but he also kills Santi because yeah. of his greed. Yeah. So in both ways, whether Santi really grabs him or not, it is his avarice that destroys him. Yeah. Right? And that maybe the only thing that's truly evil in a war is greed. Yeah. You know, that that's the one thing you cannot have because it's just too important to... Yeah. And the, I mean, he and his friends don't care about either side in the war. As yeah. long as they come yeah, out with right. some he's money. Not, yeah, he's completely... Maybe uh, if he picked a side, it would have been yeah. one or the other. But he doesn't pick a side. He goes. He cares only about himself, yeah. and so he dies. I mean, we don't know what happens to his friends. They desert him, which yeah. is probably the smart thing to do. His friend, Porco. Yeah. How does, it, how does a person be that large during the war when there's, like, no food around? It's beyond me, but, you know. Well, he's obviously prepared early. <laughs> yeah. But... It, but I think, yeah, he, I think Del Toro really, it is interesting. It is probably his most mature film. Yeah. And the next two were not so much. Even the films that he produces, and he produces a lot. Like, for a while there, he produced The Orphanage. Right. Um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Yeah. He produces a lot of films in Spain. Right. Um, that's because that's what he was doing until he finally, between Pan's Labyrinth and uh, and um, Pacific Rim, was he was producing. He still right. does produce. Right. But a lot of stuff around ch- children are definitely an obsession with him. Yeah way of keeping himself young yes i suppose so yeah um yeah all right well look thank you so much thank this you was great it's um, very interesting if if people want to um connect with you online what, what would be the best uh well there's my twitter account at bunnikin which is spelled b-o-n-n-e-q-u-i-n um i also write for twitch film yes um on occasion so you can find me on there and uh hopefully well it should be in a year from now i'll have a book out uh, with Ivy Torres, my book, which is my dissertation. So that's going to be a Spanish fantasy film, contemporary fantastic filmmaking. That'll be awesome. out next fall. And so you can read about this movie and, and more films from people like Del Toro, and Alex Laglacia, Nacho Colando. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and you can, as always, you can find us on modernsuperior.com. You can also download us in and uh, subscribe to us in the iTunes store. And we hope that you have or will. Um, if you can review us on iTunes, that's great. We really appreciate that every time everyone does it. And, uh, you can leave comments on this episode on modernsuperior.com. You can find, uh, us tweeting at scaredy Matcast. Um, let us know what you thought of the episode. Um, and, uh, we'll be back with even more fun. Thank you. And, uh, talk to you soon. of the Modern Superior Media Network.